You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association, generously sponsored by Ulster Bank. Hello, listeners. My name is Amory Butler, and I'm the president of the Agricultural Science Association. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, our second episode in a new ASA podcast series titled Experts in Their Field. In this episode, Council Member Philip O'Connor was delighted to speak with Peter Byrne, CEO of National Co-op Farm Relief Services. Peter has had a long and distinguished career in agriculture and this year in 2020 was the very worthy recipient of the ASA Distinguished Member Award. In this podcast, Philip chats with Peter on his distinguished career and reflects on his thoughts on agriculture over the last 40 years. Okay, Peter, thank you very much for coming into you today. Um, I'd like to say congratulations on the Distinguished Members Award for the ASA and your second podcast to, to talk about your career and your thoughts on agriculture over the last 40 years. Okay, thanks very much, Philip. Um, very much appreciate the invitation to come in. And also I want to take the opportunity to thank the ASA for um, the honour they bestowed on me with the um, ASA Distinguished Members Award and really proud to have um, to have um, been chosen for that and very much appreciate the ASA for doing that. Okay, Peter, as I said, this is a series of podcasts and I suppose the first most logical place to start is where you came from and who you are and how you got into agri. Okay, well, look, Philip, I suppose that goes back to um, secondary school and uh, I live just outside Ross Grey uh, here in Tipperary. And uh, I went to secondary school in Ross Grey and when I had to leave and start done, I wasn't too sure what I was going to do. Probably during fifth and sixth year I was thinking of being a, going into teaching. And uh, then I remember one day after a hurling match, a good friend of mine, uh, Michael Hennessy, who was already in, in second year doing his Ag degree, said, why didn't you ever think of going to Ag College and, and doing uh, Ag Science? And I hadn't really thought about it up to that, despite the fact that I came from a, a farm, dairy farm, mixed farm as well. And uh, so I actually took up his advice and went off to Palace Canary for a year. And fortunately, I got a scholarship from Palace Canary to do Ag Science in UCD, which I did for the following four years and um, qualified in 1975 with a degree in general agricultural science from there. And your first job then when you left college then, did you, did you get a job straight out of college? Or? Uh, yeah, a very unusual thing. But at that, that time, a lot of people mightn't remember this, but um, you didn't do your finals in Ag Science back in the 70s until September of the year. So in July of that year, I did an interview for Mockland Firma and I had actually the job got before I did my finals uh, in, in 1975. And again, it was a bit of a coincidence, maybe you could say, look at being the right place at the right time. But during, four, um, during third and fourth year in, in UCD, I had been involved in the Mockler Club in UCD, uh, the Mockler branch there, and I was chairman of the branch. And I suppose that gave me a bit of um, an interest in what Mockler was doing at all, so probably was a bit of a bonus when I went in to do the interview, in that I had already been a Mockler member. And again, a guy that was in Palace Gennery with me and um, had finished two years previously doing his BAG science degree, um, Don Fitzgibbon, uh, was already with, working with Mockra, and I think Don might have put in a good word for me as well. So by, by luck or by chance or whatever, I was fortunate to get the job with Mockra in 1975. Uh, Pat Murphy was the general secretary at the time, and uh, my first um, my my um, my job within Macra was called Adult Education Guidance Officer, or AGO for short, and I was given three counties to cover Waterford, Wexford, and Kilkenny. So 
the first day at work I was just uh, told that this is a mockery car, you can head off down to uh, find a place for yourself to live in Waterford, Wexford, Gilgenny somewhere and cover those three counties. So, so were you based in the farm centre then? Or? No, I was never actually based in the farm centre. Mockery headquarters was in the farm centre but as soon as I got the job I was allocated to those three counties and I actually lived in Waterford for the following three years and worked out of there covering Waterford, Wexford and Kilkenny as an adult education guidance officer. Our main role was organising proficiency training courses for um, MOCRA members and also leadership training, helping to create new branches, for new branches of MOCRA in the counties. That was the type of role I had. So you were involved in recruitment then and training people from the work goal? Yeah, it was very much so. Um, even though our, our job as um, adult education guidance officers was more to make sure that we helped and encouraged the voluntary market members to do the work rather than doing the work for them but still we we ended up organizing a lot of the the training courses and my only contact like you asked me was it based in the farm center my only contact with the farm center generally was when we went up there for staff meetings there was eight and the education guidance officers around the country at that stage all covering different parts of the country and Pat Murphy and John Murphy would bring us together regularly for meetings in Dublin so that was but I always really enjoyed going into the farm center because it was a real hub of activity uh, at that time. You know? um, like, I suppose at that time, then, like, when you work with MOCRA and like FRS, there was relief making groups around the country. Um, where did they, the idea then come to try and bring these groups together and you're getting involved in it? Yeah, again, uh, I use the expression already being in the right place at the right time. One of the counties I was asked to cover was Waterford, and at that stage, Waterford Farm Relief Services or Waterford Relief Milking Group, as it was called. Uh, was one of the more established ones. We were quite well established in South Tipperary and in Fermoy as well. They were probably the three most established in the country. And they had started in the early 70s. But any relief making group that was in existence at the time were working quite independently of each other. They were, you know, just all run on a very voluntary basis by the local farmers in the area. So Pat Murphy, who was General Secretary of, of MOCRA, had seen the whole concept of farm relief services in Holland. Uh, a number of years earlier and Patter felt that you know there was um, an opportunity here to help the development of, of relief services in Ireland and that they probably needed some level of coordination so because I was based in Waterford possibly I'm not sure what the rationale at the time was but I was very fortunate to be asked to um, do a bit more research on relief milking groups so we brought the first relief milking groups together uh, for a conference in, in Cashel in 1977 and that was my first uh, real involvement and from there on it was decided that you know the individual groups that were already in existence needed some advice and assistance on how to grow and, and, and expand and also there was potential for a whole lot of other new groups to be formed around the country. So between 1977 and um, and say 1980 or thereabouts we went from about 10 relief making groups to about 30 relief making groups and I would have been involved in, in, in doing that. And uh, in 1980, it was decided to formalize the structure and set up um, the whole organization as a cooperative. So all the individual relief milking groups that were in existence at the time were each encouraged to become cooperatives in order to get the benefit of limited liability because there was a big risk for the farmer members or committee members at that stage that if anything went wrong, they could be personally liable for, for something going wrong because they were doing this in a completely voluntary capacity. So uh, the advice from my cost at the time was to uh, become a cooperative and get the benefit of limited liability. And then the structure that was agreed on at the time was what's called a federal co-op, which meant that the national co-op was the overall umbrella organization 
and each of the individual co-ops around the country would be affiliated to that, but independent in their own right. So that's the structure that was set up in, in 1980. And you were appointed the first CEO of that federal co-op? Yeah, there wasn't any fancy words back in stage, uh, Philip, like CEO. I was, I think, um, probably called a development officer or something initially, and eventually uh, we got the name manager. And um, I think it was probably into the late 90s or 2000 before the board chief executive came into it. But I was the, the only person, that, I was the first person that was employed by the National Co-op, and then we employed a secretary, um, Noreen Bergen, a, a short time later when we opened an office in Ross Creek. And I suppose uh, from there the organisation has, has grown over the years. Well, I mean, that's that's a serious start. I mean, to start from just yourself, the federal, with the, the National Co-op to where you are today, like, I mean, how... I mean, that was near 40 years ago, so how did you get from yourself and the secretary based out of Ross Gray to what we all know the FRS is now today, like, and the, yeah. the wide scope and organisation is, like, what was the progression or where was the milestones that you're going to go, yeah, that was a key moment when things yeah. changed, or? Yeah, I suppose it is, it is really, really, what would you call it, um, it's hard to believe maybe when you look back on it now, but I remember looking at minutes of the first board meeting that we had in 1980, and saying to the board at that stage, look, you know, we have absolutely no funding. I was being paid at the time on a, a development officer grant by Mokra and the firm. And, so Mokra um, were subsidising? Mokra paid me for the first year and a half or two years or so until we got some funding together ourselves. So at that first board meeting, uh, we discussed that we needed a budget. Uh, I, I remember the figure of £20,000 was mentioned as, as the annual budget that would be required. And the board discussed it and came to the conclusion that the best source of funding would be the dairy cooperatives because having a relief milking service was really in the interest of the dairy co-ops. In fact, some of the dairy co-ops had previously tried to start small relief milking groups in their area with limited success. So we, when we went and made a proposal to all the dairy co-ops, we looked for, um, we put a, a very serious plan together and we went to them looking for funding over a four-year period. And we graded all the co-ops from the largest, the big six at the time, right down to the smallest co-op in the country and asked them for um, a contribution each year for a four-year period relative to their size. And I must say we got a terrific um, response from the dairy co-ops. I think the fact that you know we were a new organisation starting up, the fact that they could see the benefits of what relief milking services were going to be to them and to their farmer shareholders, and also the fact that I suppose they had a relationship with Mokra already because Mokra was getting a levy through the, through the dairy co-ops. So that was helping to um, you know, give us a, a, a positive start. So that was where we got our initial funding from. Then um, the Youth Employment Agency was set up to create jobs and we made a submission to them uh, in the early 80s and we got funding towards employing the first full-time staff managers around the country, which went from being very part-time coordinators to managers. And then subsequently, um, over the, the, the late 80s, the early 90s, uh, into the year 2000, we began to make uh, submissions to the Department of Agriculture under various uh, EU rural development schemes and we got funding for job creation under all of those. So that's how the organisation grew, say from 1980 up until early 2000s. Like that, that, those funds gave you security. And like, when did you make the decisions then to kind of broaden out FRS into what it is today, like the recruitment service, hard watch and so forth? Like, I mean, you've a broad portfolio of services now yeah. in FRS. Yeah, I suppose, Philip, it was a sort of um, organic growth in the sense that our business was a bit similar to a recruitment agency. I mean, if you like, we were, we were a recruitment agency for farmers. 
even though we were never um, classified as a recruitment agency. But our job was to find and supply uh, reliable trained operators to, to work on farms. And in the um, late 80s, early 90s, um, other agricultural businesses came to us asking us could we supply labour to them. And we didn't want to get involved in that and mix up what we were doing with farming um, for revenue purposes as well as, as well as everything else because we had a, a very good um, deal with the revenue in relation to uh, how our operators were treated as self-employed operators. So we didn't want to go down that road and uh, we set up a separate business called FRS Recruitment. And that has since developed uh, where at this stage FRS Recruitment is a 20 million um, turnover business and is just like any other recruitment uh, business in the country, a regular employment agency. The one unique difference that FRS Recruitment has to any other recruitment business is that it is the only cooperative, farmer-owned cooperative recruitment or employment agency in the country and has been very successful. So based on the success of that, um, we had always been doing some training obviously training our own operators and, and training in health and safety and areas like that. And in 2008, we set up a separate uh, training business called FRS Training, and that has grown and developed over the last number of years as well. And like, do all those benefits then feed back to the core business then for the farmer, the benefit of the farmer? Like, is that... Yeah, very much that, that sort of principle that grown into the other areas helped us to um, employ more... Um, uh, specialized staff at national level. For example, we have a general manager of the recruitment business who comes from a recruitment background. We were able to employ our own financial controller. Previously, uh, a good former colleague of your own, Joe Hickey, had been uh, our main taxation advisor and also an, our auditor for many years. We had a very close relationship all the years with IFAC. Uh, but uh, from 2004, we had our own financial controller in place. And again, that helped us to be able to grow the other businesses because we had the expertise uh, in-house. We had uh, Fabian came on board as IT manager and he later went on to develop um, Herdwatch, which How did he branch into IT-tech? Like that was a, like where recruitment was, when you, when you explain it, was a natural area if you go into, but IT-tech is a yeah, bit of a departure there, from the normal. There's a story to that, uh, Philip, in the sense that um, Everybody was always talking about every time you, if you buy a computer or go down the computer direct road, you'll, cut, you'll reduce the number of staff, it'll be, save costs all over the place. But that was never my experience. Every time you got it further into computers, you had more costs. You had maintenance costs, you had extra stuff, you had everything. I remember one day having a conversation with Fabian and saying to Fabian, look, is there any way computerization could actually earn some money for us rather than costing us money all the time? And uh, I obviously wasn't thinking of something like Herdwatch at that time. No, I thought he'd come back and well, we can provide training and, or we can provide computer support to other companies or something like that. But he went away and thought about it and he came back sometime later with this idea of um, that 90% of farmers in the country were not using any sort of um, information technology, computerization or anything for keeping the records on the farms. And there was obviously, with 90% not using anything, there was a huge market there. And that's how the concept of Herdwatch was developed. And Fabian went away and developed Herdwatch uh, initially as um, to do farm compliance where people could register their calves and later on register uh, the use of animal remedies and all that sort of thing. And now it is, you know, right across the whole agri-sector for herd management and everything else. So that's how Herd Herdwatch grew and that's it just grew from I suppose that conversation, but the most important part of it was that um, Fabian had the you know, sort of the 
the the um, the background in in IT and to be able to see and develop the actual Herbwatch. And he was the original programmer. He did everything for it in the early days. Now there's a staff of about twenty people working on Herbwatch, but it all started with Fabian on his own. Your general thoughts just in AgTech as I mean, it's a subject that comes up a lot about AgTech and it's going to do all this, but <clears throat> it's hard to see it sometimes and farmers are still farmers are still farmers that haven't changed much in forty years. Where do you see there's more development in ag tech? Is there more what should the, the biggest the quickest answer I can give to you on that, Philip, is that there are now ten thousand farmers using Herdwatch. And uh, when Fabian came to me with that idea in two thousand and eleven uh, there was very few farmers using any sort of technology. There's other companies out there as well, but um, um, Herdwatch would be the leading provider with over 10, it's about 10,300, I think, in the moment. And they have now, um, the product is now being used in the Northern Ireland and the UK. So it's, it's, it's uh, an international product at this stage. So I think farmers are changing an awful lot. I mean, if you look at what's happened since this COVID-19 uh, pandemic um, developed, People are now, you know, farmers are now attending Zoom meetings for IFA, for, for co-ops, for everything else. Social media has taken over completely. Uh, every farmer now has, has a, um, an iPhone rather than the old-fashioned phones, you know. So I think when I go back to thinking of 19, 1980 and working from my own home with a, through the local, um, the local telephone exchange down the road and having to um, dial twist the handle and dial numbers to get down as far as her, a mile and a half down the road. And she couldn't put a call through without going through Ross Gray. Uh, so it was, I mean, the, 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 the developments and the changes in technology is absolutely unreal. So it'll make you wonder, well, where is it going to be in, in future? Like, I remember when we got our first computer into, into the National Co-op in, in 1983 or 84, it took about three of us to try and carry it up the stairs. And now, sort of, uh, any iPhone is probably ten times the, the capacity that that big lump of steel had, you know, so it's it's the way technology has gone. So. I can remember Patty Murphy telling us once that we had to knock out her door and I fact to get the first computer in. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember the, the early stages going down one day to uh, meet Nicky Brennan, the, the former um, president of, of the GE, and Nicky was the IT manager in Tanbia, and he brought me into a room in, in um, Ballyragget, in, in Ballyragget House where they were based, and the whole, a very large sized room was filled with computers from floor to ceiling, and it was just unreal. And now, I mean, as I said, there's probably more power in, in your iPhone than there was in that room. You know? uh, tell me about farming, like, and I suppose the, you've seen, you've come, you were there, well, I suppose, when you first entered the EU almost, we went, you've gone through the whole, we've been into quint quotas, outer quotas, into couple, decoupled payments, and we're now into the environment, sustainability, and where we're going with Europe at the moment. Like, what's your thoughts, process on, I suppose, the evolution of CAP over the last 40 years and where you see it going in the future? Yeah, I think uh, CAP has been largely positive for farming. I think we have a, a situation where people want cheaper food and a lot of this food can't be produced at the cost that, that, that people want to be able to buy that. So a level Do you agree of, with the cheap food policy then? Well, as long as the farmer is able to get paid for the work that he does, uh, where the money comes to pay the farmer is, is, is another matter. I mean, if there is EU support, such as, as has been there, and you know, the, the, um, the, far, the what do you call it, the, the um, single farm payment that's there to support farming, is, is that's one of the purposes of it. I mean, a lot of the, the food that's being produced at the moment couldn't be produced at the price that, that the farmer is being paid for. So, um, the support of the cap is, is, is very important. And I think 
there is a very positive attitude among farmers towards environmental issues, and this is probably maybe not always doesn't always come across that way. I mean, we hear a lot of talk at the moment about uh, the impact of of um, farming on on a sort of whole green economy and and the sort of the, the carbon issue with, with carbon uh, methane production from from animals and all that sort of thing. And yet, you know, it's the facts are never really produced enough. And, you know, and the impact of all the other industries versus what's what's happening in agriculture. I think uh, agriculture, when when the facts are put out there, agriculture comes out quite positively out of the whole lot. And I think nobody cares more about the land than about their animals and everything else than actual farmers and do themselves. And maybe sometimes we're not able to get that whole message across strongly Keep enough. You know? Farming is getting bad press then, that. Sometimes it gets bad press, and maybe you know a little bit of it that we're responsible for it ourselves because of the fact that we have to. Um, you know, if, if you take the main farming organisations, be it IFA or ICMSA or you know any other farming organisation, they have to defend their 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 farming members, and sometimes that means um, painting a negative picture of farming, and that's that's understandable from a sort of if you like from their trade union type of role, but equally there's a lot of very positive messages out there. And I suppose AgriAware has been set up by the farming organisations to portray more of that positive image. But you will always get a certain amount of, of negative image where there's, you know, whether it is, um, you know, in, in, in environmental areas or in the cost of food or in anything else, there's a certain amount of that negativity that can come across. But uh, I think overall, um, you know, as a, as a career for farming and, and uh, the, the contribution that farming makes to you know to the economy is probably not not um, not highlighted enough, and farmers don't are not the best maybe themselves at putting forward that sort of message. You know? um, like I mean, <coughs> the whole like I mean, you you touched there earlier on. You were saying about Fabian coming up with an idea around what I take. Like, do you see? Do you see there is there's a business model in sustainability and environmental? Like, is there something? Have you ever thought about an FRS? Is there something that to track and manage it? To have like I mean, we talk about carbon credit, carbon and measuring carbon, but I mean, it's it's, it's sometimes almost a bit abstract. Yeah, but I think everything at this stage is going to come down to measurements and you know having records and having data, and uh, you know I suppose we're all everybody in farming is subject to more inspections and more legislation and all that sort of thing being there, and we have to be able to prove. You know what exactly is happening on farm traceability and sustainability are the, you know the two of the key words that are in there in the last number of years. And for in order to be able to have those records and have the proof of what's going um, information technology is certainly going to play a huge role in, in, in the future. And I suppose at this stage, with the um, with the changes that are taking place in farming, well, you know, much many much larger units. Uh, and you have maybe uh, one farmer milking four or five hundred cows, which was previously maybe eight or nine or ten farmers uh, milking that same number of cows in that area. Uh, then the records that that farmer has to produce and has to have available at all times are much more important. And like you would like to see happen in the in the future, that a farmer would be rewarded for keeping those records in terms of the price that he gets for his products and everything else, because everything is being produced on farms an extremely high standard, you know, from the point of view of sustainability, from the point of view of the environment, from the point of view of quality for human consumption, all those things. And maybe farmers don't um, don't get paid uh, for the quality that they actually produce. 
Um, we're kind of coming towards the end of our of our chat. Just some last couple of last questions. And you've, you're forty years into farming. Your your outlook, but are you positive about farming into the future? Like, I mean, is it? Do you feel like it's in a good place and it's going to a better place, or like, I mean, you're, I suppose, coming to the end of your career in farming. Where do you where do you see it? Yeah, I I'd be extremely positive, and what really gives me a great heart is to look at you know young farmers that are coming on there, guys in their their late twenties, thirties, and forties, and you know some of them get very good. Um, um, publicity there in, in, in the in the media in terms of what they're doing in their careers and the positive outlook and how they have grown and expanded their own, their own farm. So I would certainly be very positive about uh, farming. I think a lot of the drudgery, a lot of the you know the seven day a week type of approach, the long hours, all that has been taken out of it. A huge amount of the um, if you look for example, just a very simple thing like what takes something like silage making. You know the amount of silage that can be made in a couple of hours now versus a couple of days, a few years ago, you know, the way technology has improved and taken the labour and the drudgery out of farming. So I, I would be very positive about farming and I think young people coming in, I remember when we were going to, to UCD, Shea used to be talking about uh, farming as a business rather than farming as a way of life. And I think that motto has been adopted by farmers over the years and they very much now see it as a business. They run it and try to control the hours and the input that they put in and take more time for their own you know, for their families and for their social life and everything else. So, yeah, I would certainly be very positive about farming for the future. Um, last question, I suppose, Peter, if you were to talk to the young Peter Byrne, would you advise him to go into ag science? So would you, your career, like, where, what would you give him advice to someone who's doing, who just did or even sort of looked at ag science? Is it a... Yeah, well, certainly based on my own experience between the year I gave in Palestine Agricultural College and the four years that I gave in UCD, just that all that, that the educational part of it was really, really um, something I would be very, very positive about. I really enjoyed it, enjoyed my four years in UCD. And to look at uh, ag science as an, I did a general degree in ag science, and there's a lot of different um, electives that people can specialize in now. There was less that time you did either animal science or you did uh, animal production, um, crop production, economics, or general agriculture. And, the biggest number did general agriculture. Now there's a lot more choices there, but I would think that the the ag science degree is probably one of the the best degrees that somebody, particularly anybody coming from a farming background, or not all of them, uh, all of the people studying ag science that do come from it. But uh, it's it's so versatile. The number of different places. If you go to an ag science conference, ag science association conference at the moment, and look around at the audience that are there and all the different. Um, areas of activity that they're working in from the banking sector in yourself in the farm accounts in the services sector like myself in farm relief services and uh, people farming you know the pharmaceutical industry and um, all in the department of agriculture chagas all the different areas that people are working in with a basic um with, with the same basic core degree in agricultural science i think it's one of the best choices that you, that you could make uh, when you're going to college and i certainly would recommend any young person, buy or girl, uh, heading to college to, if they have any interest at all in agriculture, to look at the, the ag science degree. I 100% agree with you here, so it's given me huge opportunities in my career and where I've got to make it with the ag science degree. Peter, thanks very much. As I said, it was a bit of a, a whistle-stop through, through 40 years of your career and um, best of luck and thanks very much and appreciate you coming in to talk to us here today. Thanks very much, Philip. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, Again, our, my thanks to the ASA and uh, I know that you're a council member there at the moment yourself and 
I wish um, the incoming president or the new president that's just taken up, Anne-Marie, every success uh, in her year and wish the ASA uh, in, in, in general uh, every success in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter.